Hi, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. In 1774, just before the American War of Independence, Europe was infected with what was known as Werther fever. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe published The Sorrows of Young Werther, made him famous. It was a novel about a young man, Werther, hopelessly in love with a woman, Charlotte, engaged to another man, Albert. Werther tries to be their friends. They're sympathetic to his plight. But Albert and, and Charlotte decide that it's best that they honor their engagement and wed. Did I mention that Charlotte and Albert were engaged before either one of them met Werther? But you know, Werther was unable to deal with their fidelity to each other. And so he committed suicide because he couldn't have the woman he loved. That was considered romantic. And this aroused 18th century sensibilities. And soon, young romantic men began to dress like Werther and occasionally commit suicide. Every culture has its weirdness. And this cultural obsession with romance, which really is rooted and has its starting point with the sorrows of young Werther, goes on into this whole period in literature and music called the Romantic Period. Poets like Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley. Uh, but in Germany, it led to the banning of the book in some cities. And in Leipzig, apparently, it was illegal for young men to dress in Werther's costume of a blue tailcoat, a yellow waistcoat like a vest, trousers, and tall boots. So The Sorrows of Young Werther is one more story about human obsession. There have been obsessions. Humans have been obsessed throughout history. There's just lots of stories about human obsessions where people's happiness just comes focused on this one thing in their life that they must have. Obsessions become the center of our lives when we just don't have a broader bandwidth about happiness in life and a better sense of where history is going. So... The problem with Werther is he gives to Charlotte the kind of complete love that really can only be owed to God if you want to have a healthy, integrated life. Because only God is capable of bearing the burden of absolute love. Human beings, no woman, no man, can be the object of uh, that kind of complete, absolute love. They can only be loved like other persons, and other persons are not me or you. So when you love someone else as the ultimate setter of your life, you live and love in an unchaste way. And you are probably at some level obsessed. I think we can all see the obsessive romantics of the 18th century. Do you think our present time has any obsessions? You know, chastity, learning how to love appropriately, is for whatever reason, it's not surprising, is it? That it's the most uh, unpopular of Christian virtues at this particular point in our history. Because chaste love is about how to properly learn to love others. You know, you look at our own romantic movies that kind of come out of these romantic stories of the past. It's always about meeting the person of your dreams, jumping into a nice red convertible, maybe a white one, and then roaring off into the sunset. You don't see what happens after 40 years of marriage, assuming now they even get marriage. You see, chastity is not just about the S-E-X word and abstinence. Chastity is the virtue 
that privileges in human relationships, the emotional, social, personal, and familial intimacy over just solely physical intimacy. You love people, persons as a whole person. Obsessions, like in the sorrows of Jung Werther, I love the German part, is at the opposite end of the spectrum from chastity. To love someone chastely is to accept the possibility, yes, the inevitability, that they are not in your control, that you can't possess them. When you try to, you chase them away, they rebel, or, oh, it becomes sad. Chaste love is not possible without chaste conflict, because you need to have at least two people to have a conflict. How people resolve conflict is at the heart of chaste love. Learning how to love well is learning how to argue well. And I don't mean effectively. What I mean is how to argue other people with the other people. And at the end, you still love each other. The gospel today is about how to have conflict and how to address conflict, how to work through conflict, even at the end, if you don't resolve conflict. The gospel links love of neighbor, that is forgiveness, to conflict management. A more positive approach is to point out that the gospel today is about forgiveness and attending to relationships. Chase love accepts that there are two persons involved, each willing the good of the other. So how much different a book would The Sorrows of Young Werther be if he was happy for Charlotte and Albert? Maybe gave him a nice uh, bachelor party that was chased, whether Charlotte was honored in some way. Give him a nice gift. Bath towels are always welcome for new married couples. And then let him get on with their life. You see, he might even have moved on, met a girl who was emotionally available and got married himself. Werther's conflict was internal and it was something about obsession, and it ended destroying, ended in destroying him. What is romantic about that? Internal conflict is where the gospel says we should start addressing the conflicts we have with others. So the gospel today is about how to deal with conflict and it's in chapter 18 of the gospel of matthew and here's what i'd like you to consider as you listen to this gospel how you can have conflict internally when you're thinking about being upset is going to be reflected in how you express this conflict passive aggressive whatever with the person that you're feeling upset with then the larger group that you and this other person be involved in say a family or carried over in some sense of conflicts in the workplace or the kids' conflicts on playgrounds? How about how we think about conflict and arguing to the death in the nation, uh, especially coming up to presidential elections, and how we think about conflict in the church? It's all part of the same emotional, social, spiritual dimension. The uh, arena of conflict is different, but what's the same is is you and me. So in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, it all presumes that believers have a duty to correct sinners in their midst. That's going to create conflict. God tells Ezekiel in the first reading today that he'll be held responsible for other people's souls if he fails to at least try to correct them. You see, nowhere does God say you have to force somebody to believe or change. 
the church gets to burning heretics in just some an interesting historical way, but it's really hard to reconcile it with how Jesus says to deal with conflict. To love our neighbors as herself is to be vitally concerned with her salvation. Who doesn't want to be concerned about learning how to love other people better and for yourself to be loved better? Salvation can't be reduced to an abstraction that happens after death. It's really how we love one another and the community today. Loving God is about learning how to love others. Generally, conflict occurs when we try learning how to love each other. We're just not perfect at it yet. St. Matthew puts it like this in the gospel. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have one over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's an evidentiary standard from the Old Testament. If he refuses to listen to all the witnesses, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Jesus, you might recall, loved Gentiles. He was kind to tax collectors. He healed them. And he actually had lunch with one tax collector, invited him to follow him, and Matthew did in fact follow. But clearly not all the sinners, not all the Gentiles, not all the tax collectors were open to Jesus' preaching of the kingdom. Um, But some were. And so Jesus uh, is comfortable with people rejecting the message. Maybe he doesn't want that to happen. I think he wants everybody to come into the kingdom. But nobody gets forced. So if we're to live in community, family, church, and nation, we have to learn how to deal with conflict better. So let's just say it starts in marriage and family. Jesus' advice when it comes to conflict in general is to lean into it. Don't run away, just lean into it. You can't learn to love without learning how to have healthy conflict. So lean into it. Take this as this another way of how you love people. It's not as maybe as wonderful as cuddling with the people you love, but it's as vital a part of how it is that we all build relationships. Although truthfully, aside from an occasional hug from a niece, I don't cuddle that much. You can't learn how to have healthy conflict without learning how to love another person chastely. Loving chastely means you can't possess another, not even your own child. We don't get to control, dominate, or manipulate anybody and claim that we're loving them chastely. Learning to deal with conflict in a family is a building block, especially for kids and and for married people, to a more healthy engagement with the larger community. If kids and parents can have healthy conflict in a family, maybe they can have healthy conflict on the playground or in the workplace. Think of the Christian ladder of love like this. You first learn about love because you learn to love your parents and your siblings. Then, if you can negotiate those relationships well, then maybe the Lord sends you a spouse and you'll learn to love him or her. And if you can negotiate that reasonably well, hopefully, then children come along and you get to show them how to love. And there's always going to be conflict involved in all of that. If you can do that, maybe you can love the stranger. If you could love the stranger, then you could love others. And if you could love others as yourself, then you have somehow brought yourself closer to God. Pope Benedict puts it the other way around. 
how it is that the love of God that God puts into us helps us to love others as ourselves, the stranger, children, spouse, parents, and siblings. Well, it works either way, at least on a piece of paper, but we all really learn to love by first loving in families. Because Pope Benedict wants you to believe, and it's true, that all chaste love is connected. You can't be uh, difficult in your family and be great at work. You can't always be putting people down at work and come home and turn it off at home. Here's how Pope Benedict put it in his uh, encyclical, Deus Caritas S, God is love. Love of neighbor, grounded in the love of God, is first and foremost a responsibility for each individual member of the faithful, but it's also a responsibility for the entire ecclesial community at every level, from the local community to the particular church and to the church universal in its entirety. As a community, the church must practice love. Love thus needs to be organized if it's to be an ordered service to the community. So love is really from that morning when you get up and you say good morning to your spouse to um, what the Supreme Court does. Um, somehow it's all connected. And if we learn to love each other better in a family, at least we're doing our parts uh, to make the United States a more loving community. Matthew's gospel is about the order of love in the church community. That's really what's being dealt with there. But it's really at the heart of it are bigger human and social issues and how they relate to our spiritual lives. So you recognize that your home is a domestic church. So how do you deal with conflict in your home? How would you take these issues which are about the church and deal with conflict in your homes? What do your kids learn? What do your grandkids learn about how to have conflict and argue um, by observing you? Uh, you know, parents don't like it when they have kids that immediately rat out their siblings. It's like going immediately to the Supreme Court to ask mom, dad, or grandpa or grandma to intervene. Um, I, adults see how important it is for kids to learn to resolve their own problems. How do kids learn that if they don't see adults resolving their own problems with each other? And so, for instance, does it really help if mom and dad have fights, but they never talk about the kids about it, and they think the kids don't know? The kids always know. You can't live in that house and hide that level of tension. It just comes through in body language. And so, from the outside, look it in. Uh, what would happen if you just sat down and talked to the whole family, kind of like in the Gospel of Matthew when you pull all the witnesses together? And you talk about having arguments between mom and dad. Could you say something like, um, you know, mom and dad love, e love each other. We love you too. But conflict is part of love. And you conflict. You'll continue to have conflicts order in, uh, as you get older in life. Don't you think it's important to learn how to do that well? Mom and dad think it's important. That's why we're talking to you kids about it. So learn to solve your own problems just like mom and dad are. Now go and do your homework. So think about chase love in conflict like this. The scriptures start out when your brother sins against you. Because all conflict starts with the interior struggle with conflict. When someone has sinned against you, you've been dealt with unjustly. That's annoying. 
And so how much conflict, how much sin do you endure in your internal life before you decide this has to be dealt with? Um, what happens if you just over and over run it around in your head till you blow it out of proportion? So there's something wrong with obsessing about disagreements with other people. Either move on, and most, some, a lot of stuff people just move on. Uh, or you have to have the wisdom to decide how you're going to deal with the other person in this conflict. Because it takes wisdom to differentiate between problems that ought to be ignored because they're just human problems and those that really need to be addressed because we have an obligation for the salvation of each other. Not every annoyance is about salvation, but some, sometimes they are. And you have to know what the difference is. And so don't let problems fester. Know what's important about the problems that you deal with. Second part of this, how do you talk to the other person? Do not plan out the conversation, it seems to me, in your head. I always know when somebody's been obsessing about a problem they're having with me, when they start out by telling me that they know what I think. Uh, I'm not even confident. I always know what I think, so I'm pretty comfortable they don't know either. But it does say that they've had this imaginary conversation with me in their heads. That's always a bad sign of, of obsession. The better you get it out into a real, con a real conversation that doesn't really have to be resolved, but you just really have to have the conversation, the better. I think men like to resolve things and move on. I know I do. But I, as I get older, I recognize that's really not possible with most of the conflicts in Parish, family, nation, church at large. So conflict in the family. I've already kind of told you what I think about that. Um, but what I want to, what I think is bad, is subterranean conflict, tensions ignored and unacknowledged, and they're just lurk there, and they end up distorting um, things. Uh, we have all these unresolved conflicts in American culture that are really fundamental, starting with uh, enslavement of black people and racism. Apparently, there are a lot of people who don't think that's been resolved. Abortion, do you think 50 years ago when the Supreme Court decided it was okay in all circumstances, even after the baby's been born, uh, to have abortion? Has that resolved anything? The answer is no, because there's just this huge lie involved that it's not a human being. Why don't they just say it's... Yeah, it's a human being, and you can kill human beings. We'll allow you to kill a human being up till one day old. Um, it'd be a horrible, ugly thing. But at least we wouldn't be playing the game that's not really a person. That's bizarre. But like in young Werther, obsessions are bizarre. And the obsession of being virtuous when you do very unvirtuous things, it's pretty self-destructive to the, to the peace of the nation. And so how about the part about going to the authorities? Every family is a domestic church, so that means mom and dad. In the church, it's the pope. Um, in the United States, it's if you want to, don't think you could get all the states to pass abortion laws, then you go to the Supreme Court, try to get it done there. Um, authority, healthy and unhealthy in those three examples. Um, but in the family, which is what I'm trying to focus on, how you treat people, how you teach kids to have conflict, um, there has to be some kind of authority, doesn't there, when at the end somebody just refuses to give in? Um, authority is just part of a fallen world. 
whether it's in the family, the church, or the nation. Um, authority is the resolution of some problems and the cause of others. It's just that double-edged sword of what um, authoritarian behavior is. Authority is really the truth of the gospel. And if people refuse to listen to authority, and they do in growing numbers, well, it's hard to know how you'll ever resolve conflict. But that's kind of where we're at in the bigger world and have been there for well over 2,000 years. But there's something I want to point out as a really good example of how to deal with conflict. Pope Francis is very good at dealing with conflict. I can give you all sorts of examples. I'm going to focus on just two. You know, the Catholic Church has been kind of a argumentative place since before I was born. Um, but Pope Francis has shown how you can discuss things without necessarily resolving issues. The issue doesn't go away, you just don't pretend to force a resolution. Here's two good examples. The first is the Amazon Synod, where the Holy Father allowed that synod about basically the Brazil drainage uh, to allow, uh, allow them to discuss whether married men could be ordained to the Catholic priesthood, uh, what were called viri probati, proven men. These are guys that are soundly married and uh, can bring service in these far-flung villages. And it was discussed at length. It was covered in depth during the entire Senate. And that created a lot of blowback from the defenders of the celibate priesthood. The Pope was accused of being an idolater. Someone stole Pacamama and threw, him in the, threw her in the Tiber, claiming that the, the sinner was worshiping. Just crazy stuff. Obsession. The synod took a vote, and the majority of those present favored the, the ordination of older, proven, married men, the very probati that I've referred to. The Amazon Synod then issued its document, and so the Catholic press lights up over whether or not Pope Francis, the great liberal, is going to start ordaining married men. Um, whatever you think about that issue, I just want you to know I agree with both sides, so please don't try to convert me, because I will just tell you I agree. It's not resolvable at the level of a parish priest, and what my opinion is really doesn't matter. And I go back and forth anyway. Anyway, the church fight ensued whether the Pope should follow the Amazon Synod's resolution. In the end, the Pope's post-synodal or exhortation, Carita Amazonia, beloved Amazon, ignored the whole question. For Pope Francis believes, and he says it, it's okay to talk about problems and concerns without trying to resolve a contentious issue by papal fiat. In short, he didn't resort to his authority. He could do that with just a stroke of a pen. But he looks at the church and says, the church is not ready to come to, to union on this. Here's another example. Famously, the Pope resolves other contentious issues by appointing committees. Don't you think that would be a good idea in your family to appoint a committee of kids to resolve their fights? There have been at least two papal commissions in my lifetime created to discuss whether or not the church could, not should, could, has the power to ordain women to the diaconate. In both cases, it was decided that the answer was unclear. My prediction is that yet another commission will follow. In short, not ready to resolve by either saying no way or, hey, here's how we could do it. 
It's just let it go and keep talking about it. Let's all see how this works out. And you know, I've heard more than one married people say some problems just are never resolved. You just keep talking about them. You know, Americans love to resolve problems and move on. We resolve the problems of the racism of the founding republic in, the, in our constitution uh, by fighting a civil war, which is still one of the deadliest wars we've ever been involved in. But you know, the problem of racism continued after the Civil War into Jim Crow. And then, so they went to the United States Supreme Court, a bunch of federal courts, and tried to resolve the issue. We're still fighting about racism. Authority doesn't really stop the disagreement. Oh, here's another one. 50 years ago, or is it 60 years ago, 10, 20, 50 years ago, um, the people that wanted to make abortion legal everywhere, where you can kill a child on a table, basically, after birth is where it's come to now. Uh, that would just resolve the problem. Are you kidding me? That is distorted American politics. Most of the anger in national politics is rooted in these culture wars about abortion. And so when you look at how G Jesus talks about conflict, wow, don't you wish that we could resolve conflict like that? Because even at the end, the authority of the church, all you can do is agree to disagree and go different ways. And you're not going to the, to the same goal, that's for sure. Obsession, non-resolved conflict, and self-destruction seem to be related. That's why you can't just lock yourself into loving Charlotte. You can't get obsessed with this. This is God's world. And these issues resolve themselves in their own way. Hey, that book, The Sorrow of Young Werther. How different would it have been, do you think, if Werther had said to uh, Charlotte and Albert that he was happy for them, he would pray for them in support of their marriage, and he would always love them both with his whole heart. And they invited him to be the godfather to their children. And all three were pulled together in this love about this common purpose of helping these young people grow up learn to deal with conflict, learn to love, have good, happy uh, examples of love. That's called the common good. And that is a chaste love. Jesus would be happy with that because he says at the end of the gospel, amen, amen, I say to you, if two of you could agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it should be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Paraphrased, if you people could, could just get together on anything, I would bless it. Anything good, that is. Because we seem to be able to agree on evil stuff. Well, anyway, this is Oral Valley Catholic. My name is Father John Arnold, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. See you next week. So